and welcome to The Turbulent World with me, James Dorsey, as your host. There was an elephant in the room when two prominent Saudi clerics recently clashed publicly on whether apostasy was punishable with death under Islamic law. The elephant was whether Islamic law is still fit for purpose. The timing of the debate on a Saudi state-controlled artsy entertainment channel suggests as much. The debate aired days before the kingdom's Ministry of Islamic Affairs severely restricted celebrating Ramadan. Ramadan, Islam's holy month of fasting, begins on March 22. What lends debates like the discussion about apostasy greater significance is the fact that they feed into competition between Saudi Arabia and various other players for religious soft power in the Muslim world. The rivalry pits Indonesian reformists against state-aligned Saudi and Emirati propagators of a socially liberal but autocratic interpretation of Islam. Saudi and Emirati-backed Islamic scholars reject jurisprudential reform and reserve the right of legal interpretation for the ruler and his clerical surrogates. Last year, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman went as far as nominating himself as the primary interpreter of Islamic law. Mr. bin Salman asserted in an interview with The Atlantic that in Islamic law, the head of the Islamic establishment is Rali al-Amr, the ruler. Mr. bin Salman meant that literally. The crown prince, in contrast to many Muslim rulers, seldom, if at all, solicits the opinion of Muslim scholars to legitimize his policies. Louis Blin recently published a book on the Muslim worldly, Mr. bin Salman's principal vehicle for propagating his autocratic version of a moderate form of Islam. Mr. Blinn argues that the crown prince plays politics with religion. The author charges that Mr. Bin Salman puts religion at the service of his politics while protesting against the use of religion by his opponents. To be sure, Mr. Bin Salman and United Arab Emirates President Mohammed bin Zayed have enacted far-reaching social reforms that have enhanced women's social rights and professional opportunities. The two men have also eased restrictions on gender interaction and embraced Western-style entertainment. However, they anchored these changes in civil law and ignored the need to also synchronize religious jurisprudence. What drives the reformist zeal of Messieurs bin Salman and bin Zayed is not change because it is the right thing to do. The two men's primary concern is securing the survival of their autocratic regimes. To do so, they need to cater to youth aspirations, diversify their oil export dependent economies, ease social restrictions to compete for foreign talent, and project an image of tolerance. Their reforms serve that purpose, but go no further. Exhibit A is Saudi Arabia's first ever personal status law. 
A recent Amnesty International analysis of the law suggests that it remains rooted in orthodox Islamic jurisprudence. The law codifies problematic practices that are inherent in the kingdom's male guardianship system. It entrenches a system of gender-based discrimination in most aspects of family life, including marriage, divorce, child custody, and inheritance, even though it also sets a minimum age for marriage. Under the law, women are required to obtain the consent of their male legal guardian to get married. The law further obliges a wife to obey her husband. It conditions her right to financial support, such as food and accommodation, on her submitting herself to her husband. Moreover, men can initiate divorce without conditions, while women face legal, financial, and practical barriers. In divorce, a mother does not have equal rights to her children. The father is granted guardianship as a matter of principle. Finally, the law institutionalizes discrimination between men and women in inheritance, giving men a much larger share of assets than their female counterparts. Similarly, recently announced restrictions on the public celebration of Ramadan were designed to shift the core of Saudi identity from religion to nationalism. They also intended to strengthen government surveillance and control. With the restrictions, Mr. bin Salman apparently wanted to be seen as walking in the footsteps of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the 20th century visionary who carved secular Turkey out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire and abolished the caliphate. The new rules curtail the time allotted to evening prayers, forbid worshippers to bring their children to the mosque, ban the filming and broadcasting of prayers, curb donations for organizing the breaking of the fast by worshippers, oblige mosque officials to supervise the fast breaking in courtyards rather than inside the mosque. The measures resemble restrictions the government tried to impose last year. However, online uproar forced the government to retract the ban on broadcasting uninterrupted live footage from the two mosques viewed by Muslims worldwide. Looking for a silver lining in the restrictions, Indian Muslim thinker Faisur Rahman said that Mr. bin Salman likely sees the reported measures as a way to counter the ritualization of Islam. That also is the message in the Crown Prince's plan to build a futuristic downtown Riyadh with the Mukab, a 400 meter high square virtual reality cube at its center. Critics have denounced the plan because the envisioned cube resembles the Kaaba, a black cuboid shaped stone structure at the center of Mecca's Grand Mosque. Mr. Rahman described the Ramadan restrictions as a bad imitation of Ataturk. It's an expression of power. It's saying, I am the ruler. Some analysts believe that Mr. bin Salman, like Mr. Ataturk in the past, wants to remove religion from the public square 
and relegated to the private sphere. In contrast to the late Ottomans and Mr. Ataturk, Mr. bin Salman has opted for achieving his goal by decree rather than on the back of a public debate. To be sure, Mr. Ataturk's reforms involving abolishing the Ottoman Caliphate and introducing French-style militant secularism were unpopular and enacted by a one-party state. Nevertheless, they followed a fierce battle of ideas in rival publications in the last 15 years of the empire about the role and the nature of Islam that was fresh in people's minds. Clerics, nationalists, and intellectuals voiced opinions ranging from advocacy of European positivism and materialism, secular nationalism, calls for religious reform, and even rebukes of Islam and the Quran to fierce opposition to any reformation of religious discourse and rejection of the notion of a nation as opposed to a pan-Islamic state. Citing Surah 16, verse 125 of the Quran, Mr. Rahman, the Indian Muslim intellectual, argued that Mr. bin Salman's approach was not the way to reform society. Reform has to be voluntary through the art of persuasion. It's neither Islamic nor good to impose your will. Where Mr. bin Salman opts for a top-down diktat that focuses on form rather than content, his foremost ideological rival focuses on a bottom-up approach that embraces jurisprudential reform in pursuit of a moderate Islam that is pluralistic, inclusive, and unambiguously endorses the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Last month, Indonesia's Nahdlatul Ulama, the world's largest and most moderate civil society movement, called in a document composed in the tradition of Islamic jurisprudence to abolish the caliphate and replace it with the notion of the nation state. The document was issued after consultations in the second half of 2022 in some 230 religious seminaries across the Indonesian archipelago, in which the proposition of jurisprudential reform was debated. In 2019, 20,000 Nahdatul Ulama religious scholars issued a fatwa or religious opinion that erased the concept of the kafir or infidel in Islamic jurisprudence and replaced it with the notion of a citizen. While apostasy, like blasphemy, is on the bucket list of Nadatul Ulama's jurisprudential reforms, it was unusual for Saudi clerics to clash on television over interpretations of Islamic law. The debate pitted Saudi Islamic scholar Abdul Rahman Abdul Al Karim, a proponent of the classical Islamic legal proposition of the death penalty for apostasy, against Ahmed Aghamdi, the former head of the Mecca chapter of the Authority for Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. In 2016, Mr. bin Salman clipped the wings of the authority, a once feared religious police force, by banning it from pursuing, questioning, asking for identification, arresting, 
and detaining anyone suspected of a crime. Since leaving the authority, Mr. Aramdi has emerged as a religious liberal, advocating the very things on which his police unit once cracked down. These include mixing genders, listening to music, and the forced closure of shops and businesses during prayer time. In the debate with Mr. Al-Karim, Mr. Al-Khamdi appeared to adopt Mr. Rahman and Naratul Ulama's approach of bottom-up reform based on persuasion. Countering Mr. Al-Karim, Mr. Al-Khamdi asserted people who do not adhere to the Islamic faith are free to do so. They must not be coerced. The same is true for people who converted to Islam and then became apostates. There are unambiguous verses in the Quran regarding their freedom to do so. Allah said in the Quran, there is no coercion in religion. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Diplomats, policymakers, investors, executives, journalists, and academics listen to my twice-weekly podcast and or read my syndicated newsletter that is republished by media across the globe. Maintaining free distribution ensures that the podcast and newsletter have maximum impact. Paid subscribers help me cover the monthly cost of producing the newsletter and podcast. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. You can do so by clicking on Substack on the subscription button at www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com and choosing one of the subscription options. Or support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash soccer. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Thank you. Take care and best wishes.